Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Jane Sophia. For this episode, we are bringing you a story from another podcast we at Reby Media work on. The podcast is called Planet Beyond and is produced by the world's leading geodata company, Fugro. It's about doing business better in our fast-changing but delicate world. And it attracts guests as varied as the thoughtful former governor of Alaska, Bill Walker, who reflected on his state's place in a world weaning itself off fossil fuels. To the intrepid Captain Coconut, the endurance sailor Mark Sinclair, who regularly traverses the world without modern equipment. To find out more about Planet Beyond, check the links in our show notes. Subscribe in your favourite podcast app, or go to the Fugro website, www.fugro.com slash media-centre slash podcasts. Or go to the Fugro website and find the podcast section of the Media Centre. Hello and welcome to Planet Beyond Podcast, brought to you by Fugro, the leading partner in uncovering geodata from the greatest subsea depths up to outer space, and hosted by me, John Baston Pitt. This month's episode is on the United Nations Decade of Ocean Science for Sustainable Development, a science led initiative to deliver the ocean we want by 2030. This episode is a little different, as it was recorded in front of a live audience at the Oceanology International event in March. Let's join them now. Well, welcome to Fugro's Planet Beyond podcast. Yes, I said podcast. We're recording now. And here we are at Oceanology International 2022 in the conference theatre. We normally make a podcast in a studio with a few guests, but here we are with a live audience. So now, can you help me? Can you all clap so the listener knows we're really live? Thank you. But it's time to get serious. Because the UN has warned us that we have just 10 years to save the health of our oceans. The degradation of global ocean systems has led to an aquatic crisis as plastic pollution, rising sea levels, warmer waters, and chemical changes cause untold change and damage. Last year, the Intergovernmental Oceanographic Commission of the United Nations published the world's second ever ocean assessment. The findings were frightening. It was found that we were failing to achieve integrated sustainable management of the world's coasts and oceans. At the same time, COVID-19 has highlighted just how interlinked human health is with planetary health. But all is not lost yet. Determined to act on these findings, the UN launched the Decade of Ocean Science for Sustainable Development in 2021, putting data at the heart of efforts to save the seas. But time is running out. To find out more about what can be done, I am joined by Professor Angela Hatton, CEO of the UK's National Oceanography Centre, and hydrographer and Fugro Americas director, David Miller. Angela, what is happening to our oceans? Well, if it's okay, I'd like to set some context first. Sure. Um, there's only one ocean. It's a vast interconnected system made up of basins and seas, and it covers 70% of the Earth's surface. And because on average, it's four kilometers deep, that means it's 96% of the habitable space on Earth for all biology living on the planet. It's a hugely important resource for biology, as well as other things. It generates uh, over 50% of the oxygen we breathe. 
every other breath you take is with oxygen generated from the ocean. It also provides a primary protein source for over a billion people on the planet and a really important protein source for about three billion people on the planet. It provides lives and livelihoods, so it allows people to have industry in their coastal environments, which allows them to have communities and, and have food. So it's so important. It also plays a vital function in regulating the planet. So the oceans have taken up 30% of the carbon dioxide that we've produced in terms of climate change, and 93% of the excess heat. But taking up these chemicals and this heat is changing the ocean fundamentally. The oceans are warming, we have sea level rise, and by taking up carbon, the ocean's changing in its chemistry, which affects the biology that lives there. And when you add to the fact that we seem to see it as a dumping ground, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I remember when I was a lot younger, there was a saying which is um, something like, uh, dilution is the solution to pollution. And I really want people to understand that is not the case. <laughs> Throwing everything in the ocean and hoping it will disappear is not necessarily the answer. We need to think about what we're doing. And so I really want to say the oceans are changing, but we can do something about it. But I'd also like to say that we know the oceans are an important source of resources. The OECD has shown how important that is and that ocean resource will grow. But they've also shown that the direct economic benefit, 80% of that benefit, comes from having a healthy ocean. So if we do not protect the ocean, we do not therefore have future resources. So this is not about avoiding getting resources from the ocean. It's about having thought out processes to manage it well, sustainably use the ocean, and make sure don't really damage it. Um, I think I'll stop there. I think that's fantastic. David, maybe you could give us some introductory words which sort of summarize the extent of the problem, the why. What is happening to our oceans? Yeah, I think we have obviously a changing world, a changing environment. And that's, of course, affecting the ocean and all of the things that live within the ocean. It is changing our climate. It's yeah. changing our weather. And obviously, this is creating more intense uh, storm events, more frequent storm events. This uh, affects coastal communities with flooding and inundation. And then we have pressures from increasing population on land and more consumption required, more resources required to, to power, feed, medicine. So. All of these things are, are happening. Um, at the same time, we have an environment which hosts these things being under tremendous stress. And uh, thus, thus the dilemma. We, we really need to reverse the cycle of decline now in, in ocean health and do it now to be able to, uh, to make an impact in the not too distant future. Yeah, I always I always like to start with the, the why question because it puts it into perspective. But maybe we can take a step back and just understand what your, you, where you're coming from and what your respective organisations are actually doing along this path. Yes, yeah, so the National Oceanography Centre has a whole range of different activities, but fundamentally we look to observe the oceans and understand how that change is happening. Uh, we make sure that that data is fed into international systems like the Global Ocean Observing System. We use that data to model and then we work with, with uh, people like the Met Office who do climate scale modelling to predict how the climate's changing, but also to forecast weather. So the oceans, particularly in the UK, but globally, have a massive effect on the weather. And without understanding how the oceans are changing or any changes that are happening, we can't really understand how the weather will change day by day yeah. even. And we need to understand you know, over months, over years, as well as over decades. Uh, and so being able to observe the ocean in that way allows us to actually predict, manage, uh, mitigate, adapt, and those are really important things to do. But we also try to develop the new technology as well. And we try to develop new sensors to measure um, different ocean parameters. So we call them essential ocean variables in the Global Ocean Observing System. And so we've done very well in many of the physical and chemical processes. But from a biological point of view, we still have a lot of work to do. There's some very exciting discoveries I think will be made in the next few years in the technology. Uh, and we're really progressing that but uh, we've still a long way to go on the biology. I, lo I love the passion there, the enthusiasm, but there's always a but, isn't there? David, maybe you can share what your organization, Fugro, does in this context. 
Yeah, so Fugro um, is a leading geodata specialist and we are acquiring, analyzing, providing advice on geodata globally. Uh, a lot of that work is done in the ocean. Um, so on the surface of the ocean, in the, in the ocean itself and on the seafloor. So our business is, is very dependent on a sustainable ocean and uh, as a business that operates largely in the ocean, we are very uh, motivated, I think, to, uh, to ensure that we have a sustainable ocean in which to work. Um, so we recognize how important this is to, to the business, but to the planet, obviously, yeah, more, yeah. More, more broadly. And uh, I think we've been quite forward-leaning with regards to uh, our participation and support in global ocean science initiatives that started with Seabed 2030, and some data contributions around bathymetry to Seabed 2030. Uh, and more recently, working with IOC, the Intergovernmental Oceanographic Commission, uh, on the ocean decade um, as, as well. So we are definitely trying to uh, look at how the private sector can be part of the solution and not considered solely part of the problem, but to be working together to come up with solutions. I'd like, I'd like to come back, if I may, to when you say some contributions, I'd like to dive into that a little bit deeper, a bit later on. But first let me ask you both this question. What happens if we don't do the things that you're doing? Uh, so, if we don't change, then we know from, uh, in fact, one of the things this year has been really that the IPCC has been unequivocal in the fact that we are changing the world. We are changing uh, the climate and that is also being affected by the ocean. And so if we don't do anything, the oceans will continue to warm. Uh, biology will have to move. Uh, an interesting example is that um, the um, Marine Biological Association monitor zooplankton, which are the baseline for fisheries across the North Atlantic. And what they found is that because uh, the, the zooplankton are moving, the fish now have zooplankton with less lipid in it, which means the food they're getting is poorer. So even just as simple as moving one species forward, replacing it with another one, changes the fishery potential of the ocean where people are going out to collect their fish for their industry. And so, so there's lots of changes like that. Uh, sea level is going to have huge implications across the world. Um, it's going to have an implication <coughs> in the UK, but it's going to have a far greater implication in tropical countries. Um, so we really need to understand, and, and if we can very much change and reverse what's going on with that. Uh, so sea level, but if you take something like uh, coral reefs uh, as a really nice example, they occupy 1% of the ocean. They have 25% of the biodiversity in the ocean. They are massively important nursing grounds for many species of fish. And yet, if you think of sea level is going to change the depth they're sitting in, uh, in absorbing carbon is going to change the chemistry and, and make it harder for them to make calcium carbonate shells. And if you add pollution to that, you're kind of throwing a multi-stress onto those systems, um, which we really need to think carefully about. You shared with me, I'm sure the audience won't be able to see, so maybe it's unfair to, to actually mention this, but you shared with me, I got a bit emotional about it, that's me unfortunately, some pictures <laughs> of, uh, of um, some sea creatures, rather small. It doesn't really, yes, I wish I could put it on the screen. Yeah. Uh, for me, the, the ocean is teeming with life and much of it is so small we can't see it. Yeah. I'm trying to remember, so if I get this fact wrong, please forgive me. If you take a mouthful full of seawater, you basically will consume about uh, 30,000 phytoplankton and algae, uh, so little plants and little organisms that are living in there, about 30 million bacteria and about 300 million viral particles, most of which are absolutely perfectly brilliant because they help the ocean stay healthy yeah. and recycle things. So they're not harmful at all, but the ocean is teeming with life and we, we can't see it because we look at it and we, we see water. And what I see is, I don't know if you can see this, I see a, a vast array of really beautiful yeah. organisms living. I mean, is that the problem with human beings, that we, if we can't see it, it's not an issue? Yeah, the foresight of the uh, future of the ocean project, which was conducted by government a couple of years one of their conclusions is that the ocean is out of sight, out of mind. Mm. So we can see it at the coast, and we can occasionally see it, and it looks flat. So they can't get this three-dimensional perspective. Um, for me, the, one of the joys of being on an ocean expedition is standing on the back deck, especially in the really rough weather, <laughs> and realizing how completely insignificant you are. Yeah. You can see the horizon all around. You realize that the human being a dot on this little planet through space 
Um, and basically, isn't that great? But what we can do as individuals, all working together is amazing. So I think that we need to see ourselves as not so significant as an individual, but play our part in how we change. Yeah. David, maybe we can have your take on, your perspective on the impact if we do nothing, or if we don't do sufficient. Yeah, I think the challenge that we face is that we don't have sufficient data, information, and knowledge on which to make informed right. policy decisions and management decisions that have consequential impacts on, on life as we know it. Uh, so in this def deficit data environment, kind of bad, bad decisions can be made. Uh, so this quest for, for data knowledge, uh, data knowledge information is, is really critically important in a couple of ways. I think one around the ocean climate nexus, right? So you can't manage what you don't understand. Yeah. Um, and fundamentally, if we don't understand the change in our climate because of the warming of the ocean and other factors, um, then how can you properly manage? How can you adapt? How can you mitigate? Um, so this is a very important aspect. I mentioned if more frequent and severe storms, we have to protect our coastal communities. We have to protect the habitats in the near shore of those areas, the coral reefs. Uh, and then on the flip side, you have the, the need for sustainable development. And how do you know where is the right place to develop sustainably without impacting an environment or an ecosystem? Uh, so all of this comes into, uh, into play. Uh, and I think, again, I think it emphasizes why this is so important now. If we are going to create proper adaptation and mitigation strategies, um, this information is required now. You say information, but I mean, it's surely it's easy just to gather the information, isn't it? We're a, an advanced race. It's a, we are an advanced race that tends to operate in silos. Right. <laughs> Historically, we have operated in, in silos. Yeah. And even though a lot of ocean science has been conducted over the years, it hasn't been particularly well coordinated. Right. And the data haven't been particularly well shared. So we have big gaps in data, clearly, around certain data types um, and certain geographies. But even with the data that we have, we haven't done a very good job at sharing it, making that accessible, and being used by a broad community to understand these impacts, right? So this, this is, I think we're, we're, we're reasonably good at collecting it. Right. Okay. We're not particularly good at organizing it and sharing it and using it collectively for what we need to accomplish now. Uh, so I, I really want to agree with that, but I also want to point out that when I said, you know, 70% of the ocean, um, four kilometers deep on average, you know, 11 kilometers deep at the deepest, when you look at the land, then you're saying 30% and you're saying a very small depth in terms of bacteria maybe living in soil. If you start to think of the scale of measuring that where you have to get out to it as well, it's a real challenge. Yeah. You know, we can go and look at the tropical rainforest. It isn't easy, but we can go and we can spend lots of time there. To get to the ocean, you need to actually, quite often in the past, it was going on a ship for a month and then collecting data and bringing it back. Um, you can see from being here, we've developed hugely in terms of technologies yeah. to allow us now to access the ocean, and this is so important. So we're finding lots of autonomous ways, but we need to do more. Um, so, for instance, we need to share data. I think as we were saying, you know, with companies, with governments, um, there are ways we can share data. We can, even if it's data that's no longer useful to you, you can add it to the system and it might help. We need to engage citizens and do citizen science. You know, people on yachts, people in the coast, they can collect data for us. We need to engage widely to get as much data as we need. And then more importantly, and you're probably more expert on this, uh, we need to be able to manage that data really well. So at the moment, it's not very interoperable. So we need to be able to have data that you can then take and it has the same metadata, the same vocabularies. We can just put it all together and people can access, access it from anywhere. And if we can get to that, everybody benefits. You say share data, you say, you say manage data, but what data are we actually talking about? What data will make the difference? There's obviously all kinds of ocean science data, and yeah. it all is very important for various purposes. Um, but I, I think from our 
sphere, and, and probably the community sphere, one of the most important data types um, is, is bathymetry and, and seafloor mapping. Um, right. Just because it is foundational to so many other ocean science. Uh, it's really quite important to have an understanding of the shape and depth of the ocean basin. Um, and this relates, of course, to ocean circulation. Okay. So by having a good understanding, an accurate understanding of kind of the ocean basins themselves, then these ocean circulation models can be refined. And by refining these ocean circulation models, improving the ocean circulation models, you'll be able to do other ocean science more accurately and effectively. Uh, this could be like pollutions or contaminants, right? Their movements have some impact on the, the, the shape and size of the ocean basin. Uh, ocean climate and weather, of course. Ocean circulation has tremendous effect on, on weather patterns and, and long-term climate change. Ocean map will also provide insights on marine geohazards, so faults, submarine volcanoes, and then the model for tsunami modeling can be then create it from a more accurate basin to be able to predict the time from a tsunami event to an impact on some coast. And the ocean basin, is, again, it will be able to help define flood inundation maps and, and kind of the impact of flood or surge events on a coast, uh, how far up a coast that may impact a, a coastal community. So it's hard to pick one data type, of sure. course. There's many, many different types. There's hundreds of ocean science data. Um, but. but this one is kind of foundational to a lot of other science. Forgive me for challenging you on this, but you know, any consultant, any supplier always ends their report with, we need more data. <laughs> I mean, wh where are the gaps? I mean, is, it, is the level of granulation that we've got really that severe because of the lack of data? It is, I think if, if you look kind of whole, there are clearly gaps if you look at the world as a, as a whole and the oceans as a whole, there are certain areas where, that are data rich and there are other areas that are data poor. Mm. And then when you add a third dimension, the depth, then it, it's not as obvious, but there are more, more gaps and more deficiencies. So even though we may have a pretty good understanding of the first 100 meters of the water right. surface, that, that dramatically decreases as you go to depth. And we really have only observed 5% of the deep ocean. Yes. We've only mapped 20% of the ocean seafloor directly, right? So there are, there are substantial gaps. Right. And uh, I mean, I'd, in terms of, I completely agree with that in, in terms of thinking about, um, most people don't realize that most of our financial information is transported through cables at the bottom of the seafloor, which is tsunami can knock out, which is exactly what happened recently with the awful disaster in Tonga. And so we need to understand the vulnerability of the cables, if nothing else, in terms of our really obvious things like our communication systems, which we rely on and don't even think about the link to the ocean. But uh, for me, the key is if you've got the bathymetry, I want to label, um, kind of lay on the habitat. So I want to know the different of types of habitat that means. Yeah. And then want to know what that means for the biology. And then want to want to know what that means for the, how the biology is affecting the rest of the water column. Um, we know the ocean's taken up a lot of carbon. The how much is being taken into the interior and then stored or how it's stored is going to change how the ocean can take up carbon in the future. And we don't really understand that yet. So how can we predict the future if we're not really doing that? So there's lots of gaps. For me, the biology is very important as well. And I think just understanding that carbon system. Um, one of the things which sounds really strange to say, but we don't have good enough observations in the coastal system because it seems quite you know, the big scale is easier to sell. Yeah. But actually, we need to, again, this is about working with people, working with government departments, but also working with industry. Because if we can't manage the coastal environment, the shelf sea that around uh, the, where people live, then how are we going to actually really get manage how we can interact with the ocean? And so we're really lacking that. Um, I will say that we've gone from very sparse data to getting much more data and the real gap for me is, how do we really manage that? And I know manage sounds quite boring. Um, so what I mean is, you know, what we really want to do is take all that data, use algorithms and visualize the data to, you know, there's a lot of talk about digital twins. An example is mm. the Decade Ditto project, which you guys are involved with, which is about creating a digital twin of the ocean so we can start to visualize it. And ideally what you have is this lovely three-dimensional map and you can say, well, if I do this, what's the repercussion? And you can run that through in a scenario. And then you can go out and test if that scenario works by doing the bit in the ocean. 
Now, the advantage of that is one will work better. Secondly, we'll also be reduce our carbon impact because we won't be going out just to collect data. We'll be going out targeting where we need information. So we have to join how we do this together. And then secondly, I was probably speaking too much. Secondly, no, the, no. The, thing about the, carbon, the carbon impact is if every one of us goes out and collects new data without talking to the others who might already have the data, yes. then we are basically creating an added problem without thinking about it. Let's be efficient. Let's work better together. And that's, if I can add, I think that's one of our biggest challenges is, is data discovery, right? I think the reality is there's, I think I've heard on the order of 3,000 individual databases or data portals hosting ocean science 3,000 globally. So they're not all global databases, but collectively, you know, local, regional. They're not connected. They're not connected. And uh, so they're not discoverable. They're not interoperable. So you can't really get that big picture because everything is in, in isolation. And this is uh, one of our major challenges, I think, is to be able to interconnect this, bring the, the data types together, have visibility on them, um, and provide access to all, you know, in, including uh, kind of the under, underserved and underdeveloped communities because they need this information as well. Amazing. Now, I've got to know here, we've got Denise Swanborn in the audience somewhere. Ah, now Denise, you're currently working on researching data that we've been describing. Could you add something to this debate? Thanks for bringing me in, John. Um, yeah, my name is Denise, uh, currently a PhD student at the University of Oxford and working in collaboration with Necton, which is a non-profit based here in the UK aimed at catalyzing the scientific exploration and protection of the ocean. Um, so really my work is focusing on an aspect that Angela meant before, and I really want to emphasize again uh, how important it is that we have that information on the distribution of species and habitats. At the moment, we still lack fundamental ecological data on the distribution of species and habitats. And when we're thinking about sustainability and ocean protection, that really is information we need. After all, like, you, we can't protect something if we don't know where it is. And secondly, I also really wanted to touch on that point that David just made about sort of a geographic bias in information. We, certainly for the Western world, we have quite a lot of high resolution data, but there are lots of parts of the world, um, including their oceans, that are very, very underexplored. So one thing we're doing with Necton is to go out in these places and try and work with ocean states to find out what the data is that they need, um, including the biological data, and co-develop scientific missions to, to help, help discoverers where important features are so that they can include that in their marine spatial planning exercises. Uh, yeah. Are they universally listening to you? Is there open arms, excitement about this challenge? Are people embracing your endeavors positively? Yes, fortunately there is. Um, we've received generous support from a huge amount of partners, both public and private sector, um, and it really has become a big collaboration. Um, and we have been going on a number of expeditions over the past years, of which the first results are coming out, and they are also being incorporated in the Marine Spatial Plan of Seychelles at the moment. Very good. Now I'd like to, I'd like to make it real, if, if you if you like. Can you share some examples on the data front, on on other angles, which show data collection, which shows what good behaviour looks like? So I'm happy to give a couple of examples. So um, Knox worked for a very long time on a project called Serpent, which is working with a number of industries where we can actually put our sensors on their infrastructure. So we actually just work with them rather than going out. And uh, we have now developed something called Bora, which is, the, uh, which is an ocean alliance, um, particularly working with Subsea 7, but engaging and wanting to engage more widely. And again, the idea is to be able to utilize what's already being done um, rather than having to go out. They go to lots of places we might not go to, um, and actually quite often we end up doing repetitive things because we need the time series, yeah. but the fact that other people might get data from lots of other places without even it being about the, the initial question, we can also start to see things we might not even have thought of. Um, and so there are examples where industry is working really strongly with academia to try to actually help. Uh, and I think 
we can do more. I mean, one of the things that maybe is about making data accessible or even industry talking to research about if they're collecting data, are the specific things they can add when collecting it just so it's usable. Yeah. So they yeah. might be collecting loads of data, but we can't use it because it lacks a specific parameter that allows us to interpret something. So even that conversation would be brilliant. Um, I went to a, a meeting, which I thought when they invited me was with the Navy, but it turned out was the navies of many countries. <laughs> and uh, the interesting thing was I was the only scientist in the room and the only woman. <laughs> and, uh, and they wanted to know how they could work more. And of course, as you can imagine, data where you collect it for the Navy is not exactly what you want to share. No. But they do have lots of information and yeah. data that they don't need anymore or that's changed, but it still adds to what we can do. And sometimes they can actually just switch their, their collections on in areas where we would benefit and they don't really care. Yeah. So again, let, talking to each other about that is really important. Common purpose, dialogue, everybody on board. Yeah. Very good. David? Yeah, I think an example that comes to my mind would be the, uh, the mapping of uh, small island developing states. So there's, uh, there's been quite a focus and there's a lot of work to be done in this area. As you can imagine, there are a lot of, a lot of SIDS uh, in, in the world, uh, so a lot of work to be done. But the, uh, the United Nations, the World Bank, other multilateral development banks are starting to make pretty significant investment in this area. Um, and it, it really is that the data can be used to serve many different purposes, right? So these, these small island development states are particularly vulnerable to climate change and sea level rise. They do have coastal communities that are going to be, are being inundated by, uh, by, by sea level rise and storm events. Some, in some cases, these communities have to relocate mm. and we have to figure out how far <laughs> inland is, is enough uh, to, to, uh, to prepare. But without data, you move them and then they've got to move again because that's it's a, guesswork. That's a risk if you don't have the, the yeah. proper information and, and, and data. Um, but it will also support their, fish, you know, their fisheries, the uh, sustainable development of their, their economies, their blue economies, um, commercial shipping. So the, the data can be used for many different purposes that can enhance the quality of life and sustainability of those, those, uh, those islands. And uh, that, that one, I think, resonates to me because it just touches on so many of the uh, desired outcomes of the, uh, of the decade. Yeah. And a, I mean, a big theme of the decade is, is absolutely about equity and making sure, and one of the reasons for making data openly available is it isn't, doesn't really matter who collects it. If we make it available to all, then it becomes something that the best people will do great things with. And the decade is really trying to push that forward. Um, a nice example, which you probably all know, is the Argo floats. And previously, before Argo, which, which profiles the ocean with an automated float and moves around the ocean, um, we used to have to go out and collect all that data off ships. Um, the reason that worked is the person who pulled it together said, we all have to give up ownership of the data we're getting from that. Wow. And everybody has signed up to it. And I think because they had such faith in this person. Yeah. And now all Argo data, so we, we get Argo floats, we have to raise money, we get a float, we throw it off the back of a ship, and it, all the data goes to everyone else. So we find money to throw something off the back of a ship, and the data goes into a system that anybody can use. And the rest of the are really good examples of where we're already doing that. So. Does this, these sorts of collaborative endeavors attract a certain type of person, a certain type of company? Or is everybody going down this path now? Uh, I definitely see a lot more movement across the board now. I think a lot of people who were interested in the research or in the biology of the oceans were always, always engaged. I see a lot more people now who realize that Ultimately, um, I think we were talking earlier, you know, if you want to think strategically, you can either have resources now for the short term and, and destroy them, or you can plan and have resources for a very, very, very long time for mm. the future generations. We don't need to actually trash it. And in fact, the ocean is uh, incredible. The biology of the ocean particularly is incredible. And so if you stop damaging it, it will, to a certain extent, recover. You've just got to stop, I, I jokingly say, hitting on the head each time. So if you just allow it to recover, it will do. And that doesn't mean we can't work with the ocean. It just means we have to think about it. But to do that, we need to engage far more people than just some scientists. We yeah. need it to be governments who want to do that. We need it to be industry who want to do that. And we need them to see that 
you know, you, you giving up your little bit of data gives you access to all that data. Actually, that's a benefit, you know. Mm -hmm. And so there are, there are always going to be data that some companies will need to use for specific reasons. That's fine. But uh, we need to just make people realize that you actually benefit a lot more when you're kind of part of something bigger. Just to use that cliche, is it a paradigm shift of, in thinking? Um, I like to think of it as a cultural shift. Cultural shift. I mean, for yeah. me, uh, that's what we have to have. We yeah. have to stop seeing it as about us as individuals. Um, you know, if you say climate change has happened due to people, you could always say, well, in that case, we can do something about climate change. Because if it's what every single person does every day has had the impact, what every single person does every day can change that impact. So we, you know, that's the cultural change we're sort of needing in the world. Very good. Yeah, and I, I think. Certainly, I, I agree the paradigm shift, the cultural shift, uh, it, but there is a, a, a good opportunity. And I think there's the, uh, the kind of the enabling environment that's required as, as well, right? It's, it's one thing to s say I'm interested and to say I'd like to do this as an organization, but we actually still struggle a little bit with some of the frameworks um, and having you know, proper frameworks that are efficient and equitable um, to be able to facilitate this. Uh, so I think that's another area that requires some, some work. I, you know, I see investment in the private sector, I see investment in the public sector, often on top of each other or near, near each other and the, and the data aren't necessarily being shared. There's, a, there's no coordination in the development of those programs. So a, a great opportunity to look at what's being done and try to bring those resources together in a more coordinated and efficient way. Yeah. And even co-invest, right? So the establishment of these public-private partnerships. So it's not just public investment, taxpayer dollars paying for the science, but it's also the, the private sector investments that are already being made anyways, coming together, merging with that public investment for the good of both, both sectors. There's a lot of positive talk here, but, but let's, just, let's just lean on the negative side just for a second. Why aren't why aren't we doing some of this stuff? What are the barriers to data sharing, for example, technical and political? So I think for me, I mean, I mentioned that cultural bit. I think for me, a lot of it is that we've all worked in silos for so long. And when you work that way, you just don't really think about it. Mm. Um, so one of the barriers is, um, and the decade likes to talk about co-design. So one of the barriers is that we do our bit and then we say, this is what we've got if you want it. But actually, what we're trying to do is get people to think, what do we need to know? And then how do we work backwards to what do we need to collect? And then how do we think about collecting it with all the right data that it's useful for someone else? And so, you know, some of that is cultural. Some of it is very just practical. You know, we need the correct metadata. We need the, the right computational power <laughs> in which we are getting. In fact, if anything, I think we're going to be in a position where we have enough computational power, just not enough ability to actually process all the data because we haven't got the things in place to do that. Uh, and so there are a number of practical things we can do. In order to do that, we, I, I, kind of, <laughs> I kind of want to get a lot of people in a room and just make them have that discussion about how can we actually work, work better mm. and then them spread that knowledge out. Um, because I think a lot of it is it's very small steps to make it useful. And if we could just get people to get out the silo and have a chat, they may find that they can bring something. And, and that's good for companies as yeah. well as it is for, for policy and as well as it is for science. Andrew, we've, we've got people in a room here. Let me, let's ask them, who, who's got some thoughts about sharing data? Marco Filippone, Solution Director Fugro. Um, in my current role, I'm looking into solution for hydrography, coastal resilience, and ocean science. And I, I want to bring an example of uh, uh, sharing the data for uh, collecting data once, used multiple time, as well as sharing those data uh, for the good. And um, one of the examples I can share is, for example, working in my previous role as a project manager for a Norwegian client. Uh, we worked for this client for about 10 years. We collect over 100,000 square kilometer of marine information, uh, mainly seabed mapping and uh, seabed classification. And uh, you imagine that in the last few years, we discussed with uh, the client to envision some mechanism through the contract to also collecting the data during the transit and to share those data, uh, for example, with seabed 2030 to uh, boost 
the, 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 the database. And you imagine that in only two years, we almost collect the same amount of data we collected in the survey area that was paid work. And uh, because the transit is really bringing a lot of value, especially for survey area that are remote and uh, moving between logistic and uh, you can collect a lot of data and if you coordinate that, uh, the amount of data can be also structured and therefore you can boost all these data sharing to the next level. Totally possible, totally possible. Thank you very much indeed. Anybody else about the private sector and how they can support the decade, decade of ocean science? Anybody else got any wonderful points to share? Because I feel we need to do more yesterday. Please carry on. Well, answering this question, um, I think that surely the, the private sector can uh, really help because is surely raising the bar or boosting the, 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 the envelope uh, even further because we, we discuss about almost 70% of the ocean is between 2,000 and 5,000 uh, 5, meter, an average of four kilometer. We need to imagine that to map that, only that part uh, is estimated uh, by the United Nations and the, the nation that are part of this uh, wider uh, community of an effort in the range of 620 million per year for the next eight to 10 years. Eight to 10 years. Yes. We've and only got 10. Exactly. And to make that happen, they envision or they estimated the need of about 50 to 70 vessel with dedicated sensor. And if we want to map deep, we need big sonars. And therefore, those vessel needs to be in the right size. Yeah. But we can do that. We need to have support from the innovation is where the private sector really is uh, working. And if we can reduce the size of those sensors, we can then uh, deploy a fleet of autonomous vessels and we can make the whole exercise a bit less painful. But let's, let's imagine that we are not able to start tomorrow. Every year we are losing into, uh, we are losing in, and we cannot start an additional tell vessel is needed the following, e the following year. So this is where I see the, 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 the private sector really uh, coming in support is to, to develop autonomous solution that is not only the platform, is the overall digital ecosystem behind the, 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 the data that is processed on board and disseminated in semi real time, as well as reducing the size of this technology to allow a more scalable fleet of autonomous vessel to uh, take all this challenge. But the technology could well advance, but we've still got to mobilize the hearts and minds. We've still got to get the private sector thinking that this is the one challenge. Yeah. Can I, so for me, one of the things I keep thinking is we think this is a massive challenge, or we think this is going to take so long, and it's like it stops people starting. Mm. And I kind of keep thinking, if you think it's a massive challenge and you think it's going to take ages, you should be starting now. Right. It doesn't make sense that we delay because it's big. It makes sense that we start because it's big. Um, but coming back to your thing, if one ship's trying to map the ocean, it would take a very, very long time. But say, if, if lots of ships are trying to map the ocean, and I know it's a weird comparison, but I often used to think about it, if I had a big party and we're clearing up, if I have to do it by myself, it's a hell of a chore and I don't want to do the party again. But if we have a whole bunch of people who came, turn up the next day and help sort it out, it's actually quite fun and we get it done quick. And if we can just see it that way, if we can just see. Um, the other thing is, I don't think people, people worry about committing, worried about a big commitment. So don't do a big commitment. Do a small commitment, do a step. And if it works, do another step. But if we expect people to do a really large step, they just, they just shy away from it. They can't cope, it's too yeah. big. So let's do the first bit. Let's take the next step. Yeah, I think the, um, the UN decade is, ocean decade is, is really the enabling framework, right? So it's not all going to be done, but they provide some guidance and some, um, some structure. And I, I think it, it's only, while it's been planned for several years, it's, it's just a year kind of into the, to the, to the decade. And there are some tangible steps now being done to proactively engage the private sector. 
So there's a private sector advisory group that is meeting now um, that, that, that's really looking at trying to increase awareness and engagement within the private sector broadly. And this could foster communication, outreach, um, kind of public, public awareness uh, through their channels. Uh, it could be investment in technology. It could be investment in solutions. Yeah. Um, and it could be um, con contributions to, uh, to, the, to the cause. And then the other aspect of this is if you go to the data aspect itself, there's now soon to be formed a, uh, a, a geodata or an ocean science data working group that Fugro will be involved with. We will be working hand in hand with IOC on this effort where we, we were really looking at uh, the private sector that are engaged with uh, ocean science data that either collect it or, or hold it um, and to work with them, there'll be like-minded organizations coming together and to proactively break down some of these barriers that we, we discussed earlier. Uh, you know, that will take some thought leadership and some effort um, to actually create solutions. Uh, but I think I'm optimistic that this group will be able to tackle that, create awareness at the same time, and hopefully get this, more, uh, this yeah. community more involved. I mean, we're always up against the human condition. What's in it for me, aren't we? Yeah. All the time. And, but you said something quite remarkable there, in my opinion, which is, you know, it doesn't have to be this. It could just be a small step, which is that. Yeah. Um, there's a project which I'm nothing to do with. There's a project called the Decade Odyssey Project, which is just looking to engage more people, uh, whether it's, you know, citizen science or whether it's industry. It's on the website, go and look at it, it's nothing to do with me, but they're looking to bring people in and just mm. get them to think about it. So just go and maybe look on the Decade website. And even if all, the, all you do is go and look on the Decade website and think, oh, that sounds like it's really good. Um, the other thing is, it's very, I like to think long-term rather than short-term, it's very, it's very easy to think about the next thing for you, but actually we're all going to be affected by not doing anything. So instead yeah. of thinking about me now, why not think about me in 20 years? If you want to think about you, think about it in the long term, or think about the other people, or think about the rest of the world and how what we're doing has a real impact. Because surely we're going to feel better about trying to make a positive difference. I'm, I do science because it matters. Yeah. It's the only reason I really yeah. do it. Yeah. So we can do these things. Th think about your children and your grandchildren, right? That's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we, we'll have to move to wrap this up, but we, we do have 10 years ahead of us, and I would really love to hear from somebody in the audience who has a unique idea of how we could start to turn this tide. Any other ideas to mobilize? Hey, could, could you just say who you are? Thank uh, you. I, Michael, uh, Science Planet. Um, currently working on, on what you could call metaverse for the ocean. Because I, you already mentioned that, I, th I believe that without really engaging citizens in, uh, in those issues uh, and challenges, we won't move forward. I mean, all I'm watching here is an is a, is a amazing showcase of, of uh, innovation and technology. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I think it's, it's uh, with, the whole, with the whole humankind to, to tackle that. Um, problem. It's a global problem and we need to tackle it together. So um, I guess if we can get people to, I don't know, invest 30 minutes a day in even a small digital actions to support something somewhere yeah. uh, and translate that into real world impact scenarios, I mean, we can get there. Thank you very much. I was, can I add, there's a, a really nice project that happened recently where they had a lot of historical data which was all written down in notebooks and you know we couldn't really add it to the database so they put it out to the public and they said could you please start filling in and they got multiple people to do the same page so you get consistency you can check for errors and they got it all put into a system and that was about sea level and allowed us to go backwards to understand how the sea level is changing making it more accurate predicting going forwards so again that's a one a few people who enjoyed doing a piece of work that didn't yeah. take them very long but they were part of something that made a big difference to our prediction of climate change um, so again if we can engage people in those things but uh, also there's it shows there's also lots of data out there. So it's not always about going and collecting the next bit. We need to think and prioritize, but it is about making sure that data that's already out there and we can use is being brought in. And that, 
yeah, I think that's really good. Yeah, I've, I have another example from, the, uh, from Australia. And uh, James Cook University has mobilized a group of uh, tourist operators. The, so the dive vessels that will go out for day trips on the Great Barrier Reef, uh, you know, they'll take dozens or a hundred divers to the, to the reef, and they're, they're, they're moving around constantly. Um, they, they essentially took a citizen science initiative and uh, essentially just put a, a data logger on each of these vessels. So the systems, the vessels themselves already had these echo sounders, they already had navigation systems, um, but they didn't necessarily have this logging mechanism. Right. So this, this has essentially enabled them to collect data as they go do their daily business. We call that crowdsource bathymetry. It's a form of citizen science. But over the last three years, they've actually done a fantastic mapping of the Great Barrier Reef and filled in gaps uh, in the mapping that previously existed. So th this is kind of a community effort. Um, there's a small group of tourist operators that, that signed up um, and they can see their results and they can see their impact, right? So it's a very positive uh, example at a small scale of what is, what is possible. Incredible. And it is just from these small little actions that these bigger things stand a chance of taking grip That's right. and making the difference. Very good. Well, we always end um, by me saying a few words about um, making a difference. But I had a chap came on the stand, or sorry, the booth we have over there uh, for the Planet Beyond podcast, and you know he um, he used the analogy of single-use data, and of course he was playing with the analogy of uh, single-use plastic, and it really resonated with me because. You know, you guys have been saying it. One of the baby steps we can do is standardization in terms of the data we have. So it has multiple, you said it, multiple uses. Those, there's a baby step we can take straight away. And getting out there and making these topics something that we can get behind. Using that plastic bag analogy. The world doesn't like plastic bags any longer. Everybody on the planet knows that. Mm -hmm. And let's turn that around when it comes to our oceans. So let's wrap it up. And I'll say, as I always do, be safe, be remarkable, be the difference. Thank you very much. Planet Beyond podcast is brought to you by Fugro and is a production of Rebe Media. Your hosts were Alex Conacher, Jane Sophia, and Fugro's own John Baston Pitt. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson, editing by Susanna Pays, series supervision by John Young, and our executive producer is Rory Harris. For more episodes of Planet Beyond, check the link in our show notes or head over to the podcast section of the Fugro Media Center page. Or hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app.